Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 29, 2013, and my guest is Mike Munger of Duke University. This is Mike's 24th appearance. That's two dozen times, count them, two dozen, 24 on Econ Talk. Mike, welcome back. Thanks so much. Our topic for today is milk. But before we get there, I want to alert listeners that later this week, this Wednesday, ideally September the 4th, we expect to be releasing a bonus midweek Econ Talk episode. Last April, Liberty Fund, the educational foundation that sponsors this podcast, and Butler University hosted an evening called Capitalism, Government, and the Good Society. The invited speakers were Mike Munger, Richard Epstein, Jamie Galbraith, and Robert Skidelsky. Unfortunately, last-minute travel problems kept Galbraith from attending, but the other three soldiered on, and each of the three speakers made a brief presentation on the topic of capitalism, government, and the good society, and that was followed by a conversation among the three that I moderated, a sort of econ talk all-star game. It was a lot of fun, and the evening was filmed by John Popola and his production team at Emergent Order, and what we're going to release on Wednesday the 4th is both the audio and the video of the event. It's about two hours long, about 40-ish minutes of presentations from the three speakers, and then about an hour of conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Now, on to milk. The idea for this week's episode came from a brief video interview with Michael Pollan, who described the supermarket as, quote, a treacherous environment if you're trying to eat healthily. He then went on to say, it's designed, the supermarket, it's designed to extract as many dollars from your wallet as possible. So, for example, the milk will always be the maximum number of paces from the door. The idea being that you have to get to the milk. They're going to put all these items along the way. And he mentions, I think, that there are the high margin items. And that way, through impulse buying, you're going to make more money for the grocery store. When I heard that, I stopped listening, actually. Uh, for years, when I taught microeconomics or price theory, I would almost always ask my students the following question for homework. True, false, or uncertain? Milk is at the back of the store because that way you have to go through the whole store and are likely to buy lots of other stuff along the way. Now, a lot of students, and you out there listening, a lot of students might also give the same answer, which is a lot of people would say true. That way the firm can maximize its profits. But that's a bad answer. It's true. Firms do want to make a lot of money. And it might even be true that milk's at the back of the store to make you go through the whole store. I don't think so. And I'm going to give you an alternative explanation in a minute, and then Mike's going to chime in. Well, probably more than chime in. But if it is true that that's why they put the milk in the back of the store, you have to ask another set of questions. Why is the store so clean? Why do they clean the restrooms? Why do they hire friendly checkout people? Couldn't they make more money if they didn't sweep the floor and hire ruder people? Why do they bother being open 24 hours sometimes where they're selling very few items? Why do they give away samples? Why don't they charge for them? And that way you'd – because you'd be willing to pay to try something at least at a small amount. And is it even true that the milk is always at the back of the store or better yet? Is it true that milk's the most popular item guaranteed to make you wander around through the whole store? Does Barnes & Noble put the most popular books at the back of the bookstore so that you have to go through the whole store? That way you'll buy a lot more books? I don't think so. They put them, strangely enough, at the front where it's most convenient. What about 7-Eleven and other convenience stores? The whole idea of a convenience store is to make it more convenient. It's small. You don't have to travel as far for items that you buy frequently. There's really no back of the store. So yes, the milk's in the back of the convenience store in the cooler, but that's very close to the front. And they even put sodas sometimes on ice right in front of the store to make it more convenient so you won't have to walk through the whole store, even though it's tiny. They still want to make it even easier. So one view of the world, which is Michael Poland's, is that the grocery store exploits you. It makes you walk through the store so you'll be suckered into filling your cart. Now, I have a different view. Yes, the grocery store wants to make a lot of profit, but that urge, as it often is, almost always – is constrained by competition. 
and competition forces the greediest of grocery store owners to serve its customers, or we'll go somewhere else. Sometimes, of course, firms don't compete very hard. They don't want to. They'd rather not. They'd rather have a cartel, so they don't have to work so hard to serve the customer. But in general, those things, lack of competition, is cartels are hard to sustain without government. They tend to break down. Firms are always looking for an edge. The way you look for an edge is to make the consumer happier. Then they're more likely to come into your store. Now, Ari Indic, who follows me on Twitter, writes, and you can follow uh, me on Twitter where I write about EconTalk and other things, at EconTalker. Ari Indic writes that ShopRite, the grocery store chain, actually puts the milk up front in a mini cooler to make it more convenient. Now, Poland also claims that the highest markup items are at eye level. I wonder if that's true. He argues that the real food, and by that he means the unprocessed food, the produce, is lower margin, and that's around the edges. So if you want to eat healthy and to save money, you should shop the perimeter of the store. But as Brendan O'Donohoe argued in our potato chip episode here at Acon Talk, only 15% of the people are like me who tend to snake up and down all the aisles. Wouldn't it be true then that it would be more profitable to put the vegetables, the low-profit items in the middle of the store and put the high-profit, high-margin, high-processed items, which are things like the cereal and, and other things, wouldn't it, shouldn't those go on the perimeter according to Poland? So if I'm right, why is milk in the back of the store? If I'm right that grocery stores don't do it there as a conspiracy to sucker you into buying stuff you don't necessarily want or that's high-profit, that's at eye level – What's my explanation? And before I do, I'm going to let Mike react before I give my explanation. Mike, what are your thoughts? <laughs> my first thought is listening to that. I can just see you in the retirement home in a wheelchair <laughs> shouting at the television. <laughs> no, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when I, when you're like two, two years away from that. <laughs> no doubt. When you and I get together, uh, I do tend to somehow sometimes lose my econ talk hat. It's not on right I, now, and as a result, I, I did get a little ranty there. I I should have I should have warned the listeners. I think that's just fine. We'll 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 think of me as the interviewer here here early on. Um, I went and tried to find because you you had warned me that this was 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 going to be your concern, and that you had said that you were going to try to give an answer. What interested me about it was the confusion that I think people have between. Firms that are trying to maximize profits and therefore firms that are trying to exploit consumers. And I think the explanation that you gave, I think you, you said it was constrained. I would say directed. So both von, von Mises, um, when he talks about the consumer being the captain of the ship and he talks about grocery stores and producers being the, the crew of the ship. And yes, it's true. They go around and they do all the things that make the ship change direction. But the captain chooses that direction. He may not know much about the operation of the ship, but if there's something wrong, he'll switch. He'll switch ships. The actual, the person who came up with the idea, the phrase, consumer sovereignty, was uh, William Harold Hutt, W.H. Hutt. And I went back and looked at some of the things that, that he wrote, and it, it was surprising to me how much of an argument he had with uh, – Joan Robinson and Pigou and some of the other people that, that argue about uh, welfare economics. What I think is interesting is the way that Joan Robinson and the opponents of the view that you're probably going to give would want to think of stores as being uh, little local monopolies. So the, 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 the sort of uh, oligopoly firms that uh, operate at the local level like restaurants because you you the you can't really compete if it's a convenience store it's late at night this is the only one i can go into and so i'm stuck i think that's a and silly so, argument but carry on right the the net and on hut, hut thought so too the, how can you possibly think that that's the nature of competition that uh but they were they were absolutely stuck on it and so i think in interpreting Poland and the people that the, the, the sort of intellectual history of that starts on a, on a very strange view of the monopoly power of grocery stores. And so I actually, I tried to check the, the factual basis of, of what you had said. It is actually true that the dairy section of most grocery stores is on the far side uh, away, or at least in the far corner 
away from the doors. And I think I have an explanation for that also, but uh, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll compare them in a moment. More and more, though, both convenience stores and even grocery stores, to some extent, have, have these coolers near the door that are called grab-and-goes. Yeah. And grab-and-goes are understood to be a response to a consumer's desire, sometimes just to get a gallon of milk and go. And they're actually quite frequent. So Poland, regardless of the interpretation that he would he would attach, is just factually incorrect. So the if the, if it ever was a problem, and that's what consumers wanted, then consumers consumer sovereignty or von Mises, the the consumer being the the captain of of the ship, said, "I'd like to have milk near the door, please." And there it is. And you could argue, though, to give uh, Poland his due, you could argue that well, okay, it took seventy years. That's not very effective. So it, it could be that now the grab-and-go phenomenon and the convenience store phenomenon have finally broken the grip of the monopolistic local grocery store. Uh, but the, it, it's the legacy of that Joan Robinson monopolistic competition view that that is so hard to get rid of because it's just ingrained in the way that so many think many people think about economics. I think it's – a fascinating phenomenon. I think we probably talked about it before as to why people are so eager to assume they're being exploited. And of course, by the way, this secret is so secretive that is so well kept that even Michael Pollan knows it. Uh, so he's <laughs> he's alerting the world to the danger yeah. that when you go to the back of the store, be careful. Keep your eyes down. Don't look at the shelves. Keep them down. Actually, keep them down at the low level where the oatmeal is in his, his worldview. It's actually the example he uses. Um, he suggests that the Processed cereals are at the t up at eye level, and the oatmeal is down at the floor. Uh, of course, in my grocery, a lot of the processed cereals down at the floor also. But I don't, and I don't know where the oatmeal is. I don't buy either one of them, so I don't pay a lot of attention to it, except to notice that the cereals are all up and down. Um, but it's very comforting. I, I I don't really understand it. I think you'd sleep better at night thinking that that the grocery store was your friend rather than your enemy. And I I don't, I don't want to mislead you, listeners. Right? I don't. I'm not here to. To falsely tell you that, oh, it's okay. They're really your friend. I don't think they're literally your friend. I think they're trying to make a lot of money. But you'd think it would be comforting to people to know that competition protects them from the rapacious grocer. Um, I think it also is interesting to think about compared to what? Because famously when Boris Yeltsin visited a Texas grocery store in, in 1989 when he was visiting from Russia, and you know he's a wealthy guy, um, actually accused the – of being a Potemkin store, that we had uh, added a bunch of different products. So the, if the complaint is there's too much product differentiation and that's somehow wasteful, okay, let's put that to one side. That, that, that's possible. That we'd be better off if we had fewer choices and that it's wasteful to advertise all these different things. That's not the complaint. The complaint is product placement is inherently at least duplicitous and probably manipulative. Because it gets people to buy things they don't really want, and they they have impulse pur purchases that they don't really want. The it so often happens. I went and spent nearly two days looking at studies of product placement, and it turned out that by learning things, I ended up knowing a lot less than I thought I did at the outset. I was actually pretty sympathetic to this view that you can manipulate people, and most of the time we're in a hurry. The fact is, most of the time, what they're trying to do is maximize revenue, and. Maximizing revenue, and in, in given the, what, the costs that are relatively fixed, that's like maximizing profits. It is true that people buy more of the eye level, the stuff that's eye level on the shelf. No doubt. But, well, it's also true that high volume things get moved to eye level on the shelf because it's more convenient. And yeah. so it, 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 it's overdetermined. It's not that they can make you buy whatever's at eye level. It, you probably would have this vague sense of unease. I don't like this store. And it might be because they have a bunch of stuff you don't want to buy at eye level. You might not be able to identify that because you're so used to having your desires anticipated and fulfilled by product placement. You, I'm, not, I'm not coming back to this store. I, I'm not really sure why, but they don't seem to have anything. Yeah, I have to – before I forget, I have to quote Walter Williams uh, who actually – I'm when I, we interviewed him uh, ages ago, uh, I'm pretty sure I quoted this story of his because I like it so much. And his story is he talks about your relationship with your grocer, which is I don't tell him – I don't tell my grocer when I'm coming. I don't tell my grocer what I want to buy. But if they don't have it when I get there, I fire them. Yeah. They're not going to come back. Yep. And I, I, don't, 
I remember uh, I remember shopping at a venture store, which was a chain that now defunct in St. Louis, with one of my children, and uh, we went shopping for something like it was. It's a it was a Target, uh, Kmart, Walmart competitor that didn't make it, and my one of my was taking one of my kids to buy a basketball or something, and they they didn't have any. This the, the <laughs> shelf was empty in the basketball section, and uh, I think my child said, who's probably six at the time, I think this store's in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're onto something. But it might have been me. Yeah. I, I, I don't have the transcript, but um, usually when a store is out of stuff, it, it's a death sentence, and it, it was it actually venture was in a death spiral at the time, and they were they just I don't think they were trying very hard, or if they were, they weren't doing very well at it, whichever. But uh, I don't a store that systematically puts the most profitable items at eye level, as you suggest, is probably not going to be as pleasant a place to shop. Now, whether I notice that or don't is a different question. I guess you can debate that. I don't. I don't deny the fact that people have impulse issues. I don't have. I yeah. am sure that that people make mistakes. I'm sure there are consultants who try to exploit those mistakes. Um, they're looking very hard at what people do, and I'm sure there's some listeners here, and I hope one of them is Brendan O'Donohoe, who used to uh, be deeply involved in this and uh, for Frito-Lay. I'm sure he and others perhaps listening know a lot more about what grocery stores are trying to do. But what they're trying to do and what they're able to do are not – or what they like to do. Those are not the same thing. And that's, but that, that's what I think is interesting is their description of what they actually do is often very consistent with trying to anticipate and fulfill – desires that the consumers have, they may not have really consciously thought out. So if you look at those, the, the, the end cap uh, at the ends of aisles, the things that are on sale. Very valuable and, real estate. And, or at the, at the right by the place where you, you're pushing your card in and then you wait in line, so you're sort of trapped there area. because yep. there are two cards ahead of you. What sort of stuff is there? Well, it's true that there's candy. And candy is not, it's not in big packages, it's individually, individual packages because that's the highest profit way to sell it. Okay, fair enough, that's an impulse per- purchase, we'll give them that one. But fingernail clippers, batteries, batteries yeah. stuff you look at and you, oh, I need that. And you can call that an impulse per- purchase, but it's more like they're trying to make a list of stuff you might need. And you think, oh, man, I, my wife would have been so mad if I'd forgotten this. I told her I'd pick some up. Thank goodness it was here. Now They've you, actually tried to anticipate stuff. These aren't impulse purchases. These are remind you you need them purchases. And you used the phrase overdetermined, and that's a econometrics phrase. But what you meant by that is that it's hard to distinguish different hypotheses given the data. The data are consistent with, with some of these very different views. I am sure that the stuff they put at eye level is the most popular question is, is it the most popular because they put it at eye level or do they put it at eye level because they are trying to make it easy for us to find the stuff we want? And of course, that's... And I, found, I, I found a surprising number of studies that said it was the second. And that, I think, is something that it's easy to lose sight of if, if you think of the store inherently as trying to manipulate you. The fact that they look to, the, to see what it is people want and then they put it at eye level, that's actually consistent with convenience. Yeah. Now, I also want to concede that uh, often when I go to Costco, I have a very good time. I almost always have a good time. I shouldn't say often. I almost always have a good time. But often when I get home, I regret some of the uh, pleasure I indulged in. I think, do I really need two giant – In fact, your lovely wife your lovely wife may point out. Yes. Why did you get that? Why were you th- – you bought another three pairs of reading glasses? Well, you know, I'm always thinking what if they're lost. We have 19 now. Yeah, so – that you know that I now have 240 ounces of ketchup, um, 60 peaches. You know, so so there is sometimes buyer's remorse. Um, and if I found that to be a common problem at Costco, I I would try to go less often, or I wouldn't go there but at all. But to the contrary, it's so much fun. That too, that too. I enjoy shopping there. I actually get pleasure from yeah. it, uh, which is which is interesting. And it, it's a um, it's an obvious mix of perimeter and uh, and snaking when I go there. I do a lot of – I do both. I sometimes just do perimeter and sometimes I'm going up and down most of the aisles if I have a list in my hand. In my experience, the snaking phenomenon is because I don't shop there often enough at the, yeah. whatever it is. And I'm – it's just – it's the most efficient even though it's horrible. <laughs> I'm going up and down every aisle. I'll find everything on the list if I have to. 
Well, but you'll, it's like the uh, salesman problem. You, you'll only cover each aisle once, so it's efficient given that you don't know where anything is. Because the alternative would be to hop around and you'd end up coming on a lot of aisles three or four times. Correct. So it makes sense to go and look on each one. That It's it's efficient given that you you don't know the store that well. So it's nice that there's some studies that back up my view, and I didn't go to the trouble. <laughs> this was my suggested topic for a change. I want to tell the <laughs> listeners, usually when Mike and I talk, Mike proposes an idea that's in his brain that's bugging him or that he's interested in or he wants to talk about. Uh, this one, as you can tell, is mine. But I didn't – Mike, it was my idea, but you did the homework, which I appreciate. And of course, those studies could be wrong. They could be pawns of the industry. Who, who knows what where the truth lies? My goal here, though, is to try to get listeners to imagine that there's an alternative and that imagining that alternative, whether it's true or not, I think it's true. But it, but even if I'm wrong, it when you start with the – as I do, as, as I, when I often start with the presumption that the result is a competitive result rather than an exploiting monopolistic result, it helps you see things you wouldn't otherwise see. Now, the underlying hypothesis could still be wrong. Maybe they don't compete very hard. I want to mention you earlier alluded to Joan Robinson and, and you mentioned restaurants. Sometimes there's yeah. a restaurant that's very convenient for you and so it has some advantage in keeping your business and it can do an imperfect job and you'll still keep coming because it's so convenient. That can be true about your grocery. It can be true about your gas station. But it's not convenient for everybody is one of the problems with that kind of analysis. And these these businesses – Groceries and restaurants in particular are unbelievably competitive. They're constantly struggling to stay afloat. They have very small margins. They have very high costs. And in the case of the restaurant business, they're, they, most of them don't make it. So the idea that a restaurant can exploit you is, is very hard for me to understand. Now, a successful restaurant, a restaurant with a reputation, a, repu a restaurant that's, that's been in business for a long time and has a great brand name, they get a window of opportunity to take advantage of that for a while. They can serve you a bad meal and you'll come back. They might serve you two or three and you'll still come back because you have 50 that you liked. Eventually, you'll stop going there. But certainly new restaurants and most restaurants are constantly struggling against the competition. Do you want to react to that? Well, what's interesting about the monopolistic competition model is that it is true that the restaurant can decide what price to charge. And they're probably not literally charging price equal marginal cost. They're, 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 they don't do enough volume to get to the point where they're going to charge price equal marginal. That, that is, they're, the, the, the amount that it costs for them to make and serve that one meal is not what the price is. The price is very substantially higher than that. Now, some nights they, they might say, hey, there's nobody here. You know, we ought to cut our prices. But they don't. They, they may have happy, happy hour or something like that. But the thing is, it's a relatively homogeneous product. Maybe they have a few things that are specials or uh, happy hour from six to eight. Grocery stores have a more complicated pricing model, and they do it in a number of ways. They have sales that they advertise, lost leaders they try to get people in on. And even convenience stores uh, may have milk that's pretty close to the price in a grocery store, whereas toothpaste is five times as much. You know, they have the really very high prices because they don't sell that much at the 7-Eleven, the Circle K. They don't sell that much. You look at it, that's a really high price, but it's 11 o'clock at night. They're, I really need it. There's nowhere else for me to go. I'm actually glad that it's open. Some and, people are mad that the price is so high. And they have low turnover of the items, so yeah. they have to carry some of those fixed costs per item is going to be a little bit higher. So it, look, it looks like the, the margin is very high, but it may not be in reality. Five times. Well, the margin is very high on that one thing, and if they knew they were going to sell it, it would be different. But this is basically an insurance policy. What they've done is they've bought a bunch of things, and every once in a while, one or two people are going to buy a couple of them. They may end up throwing it away, but they have this inventory, and they have to carry this inventory. It's a really terrific service. Grocery stores can use some things like that that are lost leaders, but generally they turn things over quite a bit more. The interesting thing about grocery stores lately is they move more and more to loyalty programs where you have a card and there are substantial discounts on all kinds of products. If I show my, my Kroger card, my Piggly Wiggly card, my Harris Teeter here in North Carolina, if I show that card, I get substantial discounts. I think there, there's just a bunch of odd things about that. Yes, there are. One of them is one of the one of them is that the they're they're using the information about the patterns of your 
consumption, your, your, your purchases, to try to uh, market things better. But I, I find it fairly common if I don't have my card, the person at the checkout will just use theirs. Yeah, I know. And <laughs> that seems bizarre to me. Yeah. Well, that, hur- that hurts the price discrimination explanation. The claim is, is that they're trying to, ex- they're trying to give a, a good price to the loyal or the ones who are smart enough or the ones who are concerned enough about price to have the card, but they exploit everybody else, especially the yeah. people with the allegedly inelast- relatively inelastic demand who don't care so much about price and therefore can be exploited by the high mark- marked price and don't get the discount with the card. But yeah, the same is true with coupons, by the way. The coupons, yeah. oh, I don't have the – do you have a coupon? No, I don't. Oh, don't worry. We have some here. Th- that, yeah. That's bizarro. Uh, it's certainly bizarro for the price discrimination model. Um it's just, it is, but it's just it's, hard to understand. Period. <laughs> well, it's it. I think there's two functions for this. One is we announce sales and we announce reductions for loyalty programs like those cards in order to get people in the store to begin with. But if someone's in the store, um, we they they seem to say let let's provide them with friendly service. And with, I, I don't think that anyone has gone to the checkout person and said you will be fired if you use your card. Correct. It seems to be at least it's at least tacitly accepted. Yeah, I think. And so the well, but like I said, I I it turned out I I knew less than I thought I did. I still want to hear if I can be the interviewer for a second. I still want to hear Professor Roberts your explanation for why milk is in the back. Okay, so I'm going to put you off for a minute. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to to duck the question because I want to I want I want to I want to jump onto something you you alluded to about restaurants that's too fun not to mention and then. Uh-huh. Could, but don't don't let me get away with this because it could be I don't have an explanation, and I just want to talk about the Red Sox or the Cardinals because yeah. it's August twenty. What did I say it is twenty ninth, and they're both in first place. So I think both I think yeah, in first place. I think we should schedule an interview for September thirtieth. I know causation yeah. and correlation can get confused, but who knows? Why not? Take, <laughs> why take a chance? Anyway, so the thing I want to jump to is um, something I heard from Earl Thompson, which uh, the UCLA economist that that's. It's so interesting, and, and if you've never heard the idea or the argument before, I think you'll find it intriguing out there, which is that if you want to know the markup on something, and a lot of times people say, oh, this, you know, the liquor is so expensive. That's yeah. where they make all their money. They, 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 right. they lose money on everything else, but they get it back on the liquor, or they make it up on the desserts or whatever it is. And one of the things that ignores uh, – ignores a couple things. It ignores the fixed and not sometimes not so fixed cost of a liquor license. Which uh, makes the actual profit of the item different from what the markup is. I think people think, well, I know what a bottle of wine costs, and this is so much more than that in the restaurant. But of course, the steak is a lot more too. And you say, well, okay, but there's labor costs. They're not that much. There's not much labor cost in a bottle of wine. How could that be the a legitimate competitive markup? And Earl Thompson's insight was that if you want to understand the markup on restaurant items, you should think about how long it takes to eat them. Because what you're doing at a restaurant is two things. You're eating the food, which has fixed and variable costs. It has a, a excuse me, a, a upfront and a material and a labor cost. But you're also renting a table. And it's, this is another topic, the table is rented for zero. The, the rent yeah. for the table is implicit in the items. Now, why that is is an interesting cultural phenomenon. Maybe we'll talk about it, but it, put it aside for the moment. The table You can sit at the table for a long time. There's no meter, and yeah. there's an argument for putting a meter there. But for either cultural or, or convenience reasons, I think it would hurt the pleasure of the meal to see the clock ticking. I think that's the reason. At some point, they may start to say, look, you know, they you've will. got to either order something or go, but it's a long time. Correct. But So there is a meter, but it's very casual. There's a huge – there's a lot of looseness in that meter. So basically, you pay for your table rent in the overhead price, in the retail price of the item. So coffee – oh, gosh, coffee's so expensive. It costs them pennies to make it. They make a killing on the coffee. They don't. The coffee is what you linger over. The wine is what you linger over. The dessert adds minutes, real minutes to the meal. And all of that reduces the number of times a table can turn over in the course of an evening. And so you have to pay for the privilege of consuming those long-time items. And I think that's an incredibly deep, deep insight into yeah. pricing and, and restaurants and, and just how to think like an economist. That's beautiful. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I had not thought about that before. And so the, the idea of average cost is very complicated and marginal cost is sort of facile. So co- just complaining about that, you, you, you can't mean that. So if Earl is right, and I think he is, and if I'm right in agreeing with him, that raises a question. I'm going to just raise this question and then you can press me on the milk question or you can try to answer the question and we can go on. But it, we would spend a long time in my micro class talking about this, which is the following. If it's true that the markup for the item, the price of the item includes that is is affected by the powerfully by the amount of time it takes to consume it because you were implicitly renting a table, why is it that so many restaurants have takeout menus that have the same prices as their sit down in the store menu? And that's a very, very good question to challenge Earl Thompson's view and my view and listeners challenge you to think about how I would answer that question because if I'm right, then takeout should be cheap and eat in in the restaurant should be the more expensive price. The fact that they're together seems to refute the claim that the price of the item reflects the time it takes to eat it. Um, And that would be true certainly for drive-by windows uh, at fast food restaurants, but even just regular restaurants that have – that have – offer you takeout – that would seem to be a refutation of that, but it's not. Of course, there there's an answer. It may not be right, but there is an answer to that. You want to think about that, Mike, or do you want to press me? Nope. I I think that is interesting. I think for fast food, surely the answer is that they're rarely completely full. They don't have the same. It is not exactly the same peak load problem, and people don't linger as long at fast food restaurants anyway. The the question is more interesting for Great ex- point. relatively expensive restaurants that have. Uh, a takeout menu, and I have noticed more than a few. It's not half, but I've I've noticed more than a few that that do have a separate takeout menu where it's cheaper. There are discounts, uh, but by and large, you're right, and that that does seem like a mystery. If, if the explanation is correct, if Earl Thompson's explanation is correct, and it, it's intuitively plausible, then you've immediately run on a problem then why would they have the same prices for takeout? So I'm, I'm really just restating it. I think there are some places that have different takeout menus, but not many. A lot of them have the same. And forget the complicated how long it takes to eat a thing. If I'm not going to be sitting at the table, shouldn't I get a break? And if I'm going to – or yeah. a better way to say it, if I'm going to be sitting at the table, shouldn't I have to pay a premium? And another – yet another way to say it is a restaurant that has lots of takeout can have a smaller eating space in theory – and have lower prices because they have lower rent. So shouldn't yeah. they distinguish between those? And wouldn't a restaurant that offered uh, a bargain on takeout monopolize the takeout business? Shouldn't there be competition among restaurants for takeout so that those who refuse to offer a, a discount should be in trouble relative to those that do? Uh, yeah, I think that's the. It, it's not the I should get a break because nobody cares what you should get. But why wouldn't they give me a break in order to to attract my business? And the peak problem then, you'd have to rebuild everything because the peak problem is going to be in the kitchen. I can't provide service to the people that are paying a premium to be at the tables if I'm also really backed up on takeout orders. Yeah, well, that's another issue about space and how long. By the way, that's of course another. Role, plays another role in the in the price of the good. It's not just how long it takes to eat it. It's how long it takes to cook it. Obviously, an item that yeah. takes longer, we would expect it to have a bigger markup over its raw material cost than an item that can be cooked very quickly. Uh, yeah, the so time and, and preparation effort. Yeah. So my well, answer. I think that I, please. Well, I'll give you my answer. I, it's it's a guess. Obviously, we don't know the real answer. Maybe, maybe that it's a mistake on the part of restaurants. Again, I always. People say there's a mistake. You always want to say, well, they kind of have an interest <laughs> well, in – If there's a mistake, you should be in the restaurant. That's one though. answer. It was one of my thoughts for Michael Poland too. Why don't you open a grocery with yeah. the milks all in the front? Yeah. And the answer – He'd make a killing. He's going to make a killing. Oh, my gosh. With all the healthy food? Um, yeah. And maybe we'll later we'll get to some nudging because I know that's something you've been thinking about. Um, yeah. Because it, it that's all – can get wrapped up in, into this. But my explanation, which is the best I can do – is that if there was a big differential, which there is in terms of cost between takeout, I think, between takeout and sit-down, I think sit-down's more expensive. Now, takeout has its own costs that aren't maybe not so obvious. So that can be part of the problem too. Maybe there, maybe there are some aspects of takeout that I'm not aware of 
that it's very costly to bundle it all up, so put it to the side. Maybe people don't show up sometimes for their takeout orders. Food gets thrown away. So there may be some issues here I'm not aware of. But my other thought was that when you come in for takeout, uh, what if you said, I changed my mind, I'd like to eat it here? Are they going to say, yeah. oh, here's a, you have to, we're going to pay, charge you more for that? So if you drive through the McDonald's takeout line, uh, and it's, let's say, let's say the takeout price at the window is, is, is half, and you've got the little bag, are they going to now have to monitor that you don't want to come into the restaurant and sit down with it? It just adds uh-huh. a whole level of other costs and monitoring that I don't think they want to deal with. But it, it, that's just, just an answer. It's the best I can do. Yeah. So so let's talk about the the milk. Yes. So the reason I think it's in the back, it's always been my presumption, and I've got a little bit of evidence on this. Um, it's anecdotal, but it's, it's a little bit of evidence. Is uh, milk has to be in coolers, and it's hard to put a cooler in the middle of the store. Obviously, we've, they're, we're finding ways technologically to do it. I think that's part of the reason why it's taken 50 years to put the grab-and-go mini f- coolers in the front. I don't think that – I think that's a technological change. But it's hard to put a cooler in the front, It's and it's very inconvenient to fill a cooler from the front. So milk is brought to the store in trucks. It's – the trucks – it's cold. It needs to stay cold. It, you don't want it wandering around, uh, and it's just hard to have a cooler in the in in the middle of the store or the front of the store. So the coolers tend to be on the back wall of the Seven Eleven and the and the Harris Teeter. Um, there are some freezers in the middle of the store now for ice cream, so that that does challenge my my claim. But my argument would be it's it's not to inconvenience customers to make them buy other stuff. It's that it's the cheapest way to provide the milk. Well, it's the I I I think that's exactly right, and actually I think there's evidence for it from again the time that I spent more evidence than I would have expected. Uh, milk is not only heavy and bulky and relatively fragile, but the coolers that you have the milk in produce quite a bit of heat that has to be vented, and the, that's the freezer. A point. Yeah, that's a much better the, point. So that it has to be against a wall. To start with, it has to be against a wall, and it would be easy if you could deliver it from the back. And so almost all milk, if, if, you, if you see someone putting more milk in from the grocery store, it's not from the front. There's these uh, slightly angled metal sort of tray things, and they're loaded from the back. And it, it has to be in the in the back to do that, and that's more true from that's true for grocery stores, not for convenience stores. But as you said, convenience stores aren't that big anyway. So the grocery stores do that for milk. Freezers you load once, and they may turn over once every two or three weeks. You have to put new milk out almost every day, and you, you do so it from the back. Yeah, so, so the inventory part's a big part of it. But, but how is it that they can on this venting issue? How does the ice cream part of the store that's not against the back wall? How do they manage that? You're saying because um, it's, it's a, not a as diff- frequent. It, it's a lot of them horizontal. And the the ice cream ones, uh, they're, they they have fans that keep the, the the cold air in. The ones that are big, that have uh, the the heavy doors, aren't opened nearly as often. And so what they have is pipes that run under the floor. The milk gets opened so often, and they're they're three times as powerful. It actually takes a more powerful cooler for the milk than it does for the freezer because people don't open the freezers as much. Milk's constantly being turned over, and the, the doors are constantly being opened. It just produces a lot more heat. It, the, the question is not how cold does it have to be. The question is how often does warm air come in, and milk just a lot more. You said you didn't learn I, anything. I, you said you didn't. I, you I, said you got dumber. You got smarter. It wasn't so much that I really felt like I got dumber before. What happened was that everything I thought was true just turned out to be more complicated. So. Maybe that's what getting smarter is, is finding out that you don't know the things you think you did. I was assumed that it was true, that it isn't so bad. You have to walk to the back to get the, to get the milk, to look at the dairy. In fact, there's really almost no other way that they can do it. And if you were going to design a store, it would be awfully expensive for you to do anything except the way that all the stores do it. And so it, it's not a conspiracy. It's just technology. And this grab-and-go thing, this new innovation of the freezer at the front, how do you think about that? What do you think about that? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a smaller cooler, and uh, it produces heat, but it's not the, the massive one. 
and they they just restock that by hand. If 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 it's out, they restock it by hand. They restock it from the front. Um, there aren't actually that many people that just want to get milk. That's just a myth. It's not true that you run into a grocery store and just want milk. If if you want that, you go into the Circle K. You go into a convenience store. Yeah, I wonder what proportion. It's an interesting question. What proportion of customers actually do buy milk when they go? Do buy only milk? No, any milk. Is it is it ninety? Uh, is it sixty? I have no idea. Yeah, that's another interesting another interesting question. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else to say about coolers, milk, um, high level margins, groceries? Do you have anything well, else so you want to add? It struck me that there is like tables in restaurants a scarce resource in grocery stores, and that is shelf space that people are actually interested in. So if I'm searching for a particular product, I can find it even if it's not on the top shelf. And I'm, if I'm searching for something that's a particular size and I'm going to either compute the price per ounce or use the little tags that have price per ounce, I can put those on the lower shelf. So if, if this is something that someone needs but is likely to have forgotten that they need and just will say, oh, I remember now and pick it up, the, the shelf space that's available there is very expensive. It's been one of the one of the, the things that the studies have found consistently is that those things you can't see. I'm making air quotes. Things that are on that 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 highest value shelf space they are overpriced. They're much higher priced than if the, the compared to the price per ounce for the the lower down products. But part of the reason for that is they're occupying valuable shelf space. Yeah, there's, so there's a rental, I, there's a rental, there's a rental thing, just like the table. But it's my understanding, and, and I, I apologize to Brendan O'Donohue for when we talked about this. I don't remember, but it's my understanding that that they pay a premium to get in those that retail that yeah. that the food manufacturers pay a premium for those slots and for the end caps, uh, and they stock them themselves. I mean, this is one of yeah. the most interesting things I learned from that uh, potato chip podcast. Is that in if you look, keep your eyes open at a grocery store, you'll see it. You'll see people in the store who aren't working for Harris Teeter or Giant. They're working for Frito-Lay. And well, they're, they're, they're working for them in a sense. They're just not being paid by them because they're correct. doing a service that they otherwise would have had to provide. But th that's part of the implicit charge to the potato chip manufacturer or to the, uh, the soft drink manufacturer. It's a, an in-kind payment to the store because they'll do the stocking. The, the return is that they get better shelf space. Yep, and the customers come in and they like it. And uh, But it is a fascinating thing that in many ways a grocery store is just, are, is just renting the space out to the manufacturers. We think of them it's as a, being something else. It's a mall. Yeah, it's, it's a, a mall. It, it, it's become more like a mall. Now, the, the, the boundaries between stores in the mall aren't as clear as in an old-fashioned mall, but they're much more clear than might have been in a grocery store 50 years ago where there were stock boys and stuff came in in trucks and you put it in. And I want to say one more thing about groceries and then let's talk uh, – we'll close talking about nudging. The other thing I want to say about groceries is that – and I'd be interested to hear your experience, but I live in uh, suburban Maryland in Montgomery County. And Montgomery County is a highly regulated environment. It's very hard to st open a grocery store here. Um, grocery stores, unlike restaurants, have very, very large footprints. They, they require a lot of space to bring in the trucks for the, sh the store itself, for the parking lot. So uh, there's a lot of rent-seeking activity around the fact that the politicians here restrain the free market's ability to provide grocery stores when, when and where you want them. So where I live, uh, it took forever for a second grocery store to open nearby. There was a giant that was uh, nearby, a giant grocery store that was not very well kept, not very attractive. When Harris Teeter finally opened up, uh, the giant got uh, overhauled finally and became a, a fairly pleasant place to shop. But it was only when Harris Teeter open that they became a more competitive place and the political environment here, the regulatory environment makes it hard for competition to work any kind of magic at all. Uh, it's a little like the old phone company slogan, we don't care, we don't have to. Uh, <laughs> when you're in a competitive environment, you have to care, you at least have to pretend to care or you're going to lose your customers. So the other thing that happens here in Montgomery County is that Super Walmart, I don't think there's one here in Montgomery County, but Super Walmart's uh, need a special permit. Any any store of a certain size needs a special permit here in Montgomery County. 
which means that it, I think it only I think the only store it's relevant for is Super Walmart, maybe Costco. I don't think so, but. Basically, what it means is that for a super Walmart to open, they have to jump through an enormous number of hoops. They have to be really nice to a bunch of legislators uh, and county council members. And as a result, there isn't one. Uh, and that's part of the reason. It's also land's expensive here. It's a lot of, I don't want to suggest it's, that this is the whole reason that there's not much grocery opportunity here. But my guess is, is that in regions of the country where the uh, permitting and zoning process is a little more flexible and a little more liberal – uh, then I think it's probably the case that you have more groceries to choose from. Pricing is better. The store is cleaner and nicer. Um, that's just my guess. We don't have a Wegmans here, for example. They're in northern Virginia. Wegmans is a phenomenal chain that would clean the socks off of um, Giant if it were here. But they don't have to worry about them. They're not here. And I don't think it's because Wegmans doesn't want to be here. And this is another thing. I had not read W.H. Hutt on this. Um, there was a battle between Hutt and Joan Robinson about sort of the status of welfare economics. How should you think about standing of harms? And what Hutt said is you ought to try to choose policies that do the greatest benefit for large numbers rather than try to protect uh, producers or labor where it's a relatively small number, but it's a significant harm if they go out of business. Whereas... Joan Robinson, Pagu, and others said, well, you know, we should protect producers also. And so what you're talking about, if, if to the extent that, you know, with, with the caveat, there are many other reasons why it's hard to open a grocery store. But if you have to get the permission of your competitors to open a discount grocery store, they're going to do everything they can to withhold it because they're going to go out of business. The stakes for them are enormous. And there's no voice in that process for consumers because the difference of, you know, a nickel, the tiny margins, the differences that I might pay on a few products at the grocery store, sure, I'd prefer a Wegmans. But there's a giant, maybe there's another store. It would really change the nature of business for those. They're the ones who go down to the city council. They're the ones who show up at these meetings and say, no, no, there's all sorts of reasons we shouldn't do this. Hutt was really way ahead of his time, I think, in saying that these interest groups, this sort of a, a Stigler, George Stigler theory, this was in the 30s, uh, a theory of, uh, of interest groups that would say you're going to have very concentrated benefits that are, will be dwarfed by the costs that are imposed on many, many people. That's why you need to worry only about consumer sovereignty. Harms that are done to producers don't count. It's easy for us as economists to say that. Politicians don't feel that way. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, and I, I, I'm trying to find a way to work in something. We've been talking about milk, but milk sometimes does go into coffee, and coffee's called Java, so maybe we can make an allusion to Java the Hut. But uh, it's probably <laughs> I'm cheap, glad you didn't try to do that. Yeah, because – but Hutt is an economist. It's H-U-T-T, by the way. Um, yeah. Hutt's an economist that I don't hear his name very often. It's kind of cool. Well, I'm, I'm happy for him. Cannons. He was one of Buchanan's favorite economists. He was South African. He, he wrote in a way that was not all that clear. But he, if there's one thing to know about him, he's the guy who came up with the phrase consumer sovereignty. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's very cool. Uh, let's close talking about nudging and uh, uh, some kind of various kinds of paternalism. Um, what do you want to make say about that? Well, one of the things about the nudge, and I've actually debated Cass Sunstein about this uh, on occasion. The The idea is the way that we arrange things matters for the way people perceive them and compare and make choices. And Just certainly anyway, true. No doubt about well, that. Sure, yeah, there's no, there's no question. They also would say any way that they are arranged is a choice, and so why not? Let's, not make, let's make a good one. One possibility is that stores are doing what Michael Pollan and others say, and they're, they're arranging things in a way that's really manipulative. And in that case, having a regulatory policy where we would, we would arrange them better, maybe that's defensible. Suppose that we have, uh, that we believe, as I do, consumer sovereignty drives this far more than manipulation. That is, consumers have certain things that they want, they're likely to buy, those are put at eye level, um, and it may benefit me because I buy it, I forgot that I needed it, I pick it up very quickly, it's very convenient for me to do it. But 
we may not trust consumers to make the best choices for themselves because they choose things that are maybe too expensive, that are not very nutritious. The candy. The, the, the candy, salty things, things that are high in fat, uh, not enough fruits and vegetables. And so there have been a series of experiments around the country with making small changes in the environment. And I I'll, will we'll put up some references to these rather than go into details, but let me just give you some of the, the highlights. One of the things they did was they put a pretty large mirror on a grocery cart. Is it not a scale? Not a scale? <laughs> <laughs> Your big fat butt should go to the go buy some apples. It's a, it's a, it's how, about a a flashing, how about a flashing sign like that? that <laughs> a little neon, a little like a, uh, a ticker, you know, a ticker at the bottom of the screen across the handlebars of the uh, uh, of the cart. Get your rear end yep. over to the produce section. In fact, when you're into the, the, the candy section, an alarm bell should ring. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, and, I interrupted and, and, and the more that you put in, there's a, there's a flashing light. Here, here comes lard butt. <laughs> It's a mirror. I mean, we're, we're joking, but there's almost nothing that you can say that's as strange as reality. They put mirrors on his set, his voice rising with indignation. They put mirrors on these grocery carts so that you could look, and it, it's from underneath, so that you can see the fat under your chin. Mm-hmm. So it's, not just, it's not just a view of your face, though it is, but it's also angled specifically so you can just see how fat your face is. And this is supposed to make you go over to... The, the vegetable aisle. Now, it turned out that for a number of grocery stores, if they could increase the volume of sales in their vegetables, it would actually be a benefit because the marginal increase in price over what, what they pay is highest there because turnover is so high. So much of it goes to waste. So I, lost, I, lost partic- it. I lost it there. Say, say that again about vegetables. All right. Let's say on, on a head of cabbage. Let's compare that a to staple, a box of cereal. A staple of my diet, by the way. Well, so the, uh, a, a box of cereal lasts for quite a while, and it's very competitive. People, it's, it's a very homogeneous commodity. Um, I may go to one store rather than another for a difference of 30 or 40 cents. I remember that my particular kind of cornflakes is cheaper, so that's very competitive. But uh, if I'm going to buy cabbage, it's... I'm, I'm going to buy cabbage. It, it isn't all that expensive. The cost from the farmer isn't that high, but it's about three or four times the cost that the that the grocery store paid for it. I don't know. So that's, mark- so that's by the way, that's exactly the opposite of what Michael Pollan claimed. Michael Pollan claimed the high markup items are the processed cereals, et cetera. That's where they make all their profit, not on the vegetables. You're claiming the opposite. Well, let's let's compare apples and apples. Michael Pollan's claim, if I understand it, is that oatmeal is not very processed. And so oatmeal is much less expensive than cornflakes, which are very highly processed. And so oatmeal's down below and has a much lower price. So there you're comparing two kinds of cereals. He's, compl- he's claiming that it has a high, not just a that he's not just claiming the cornflakes have a higher price. He's claiming they yeah. have a higher markup, higher profit for the store. But, 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 compared, to, but compared to oatmeal which is a less processed kind of cereal, but both of them are dried and in boxes. Anything that's green has an enormous markup. You're saying because it because, spoils. It could, you could lose, throw spoils. it out. Okay. I'm yeah. gonna, that's not, so again, that comes to my other point. Just the costs are harder to see, and that's yeah. fine. Yeah. And so the, it seems like they didn't pay much for this cabbage. I shouldn't have to pay so much for it, but they throw so much of it away that that's the... So they have the to water it, by the way. <laughs> yes, no, they, they do. It, they there, do. There's a... They have to handle it. They, they water it. Every, no, they, have, they you, spray you, it every every few hours to you, keep it fresh. Well, you, 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 sometimes you reach in there and the, the, the sprinkler comes on. Yeah. It turned out that the stores were thrilled with this. And so a number of them have actually implemented this. It increased their profit. The mirror. Yes. Because it got people to buy the higher margin cabbage? I find that – It actually – it, it actually well, the, the, I, what, I'm, I'm quoting a, an interpretation of a study. Who knows if, if that's actually correct. Interesting. But, the person mentioned it as something that was interesting, that it, it was an unexpected result. The two things that they noticed were, overall, people did not spend more at the grocery store at the ones that had these mirrors. So it was a controlled experiment. Some of them had the mirrors, some did not. The ones that had the mirrors spent about the same total amount per trip as the ones that did not have the mirrors. However, 
the ones with the mirrors spent more on fresh vegetables, cabbage, things like that. And the claim was that the profit was is slightly higher if for the for the ones that had the mirrors because everybody else was just buying uh, packaged, relatively uh, stable, le- lower profit foods. Eh, caught me skeptical about that one, but it reminds me of the Kingsley Amos line, which is um, immortal, which is that inside every fat person is a fatter person trying to get out. <laughs> Trying to get out. Yeah, so you look at the you look at the mirror and you think, yeah, I'm not as fat as I thought I was. I'm going to get some more candy. I don't know. Uh, it could go either way. It would seem to me. I'm not so sure. I will. I will well, say for the record that I have not bought a piece of candy at a checkout counter in at least two years. So it's possible to avoid it. And and I also, by the way, and I, I'm going to press you on this, Mike. I don't buy those magazines there either. Do you? <laughs> Well, there's no point. Usually I'm in line wrong, and I've already them, huh? finished reading it. Oh, love I've that. already finished reading it, so I'm not going to buy it. You, you treat it as a lending library. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to know if J-Lo really is going to get back together with Mark Antony. Yeah, that's I can't sleep. Uh, whoever they are. I, I know who J-Lo is. I don't know who Mark Anthony is. <laughs> her um, one, of, one of her many ex-husbands. Okay, good to know. See, uh, this show is full of value. Um <laughs> So on this nudge thing, some people would like – just like they'd like to ban – they have banned trans fats in, in many places. They they want to ban large sugary drinks. Um, they want to ban all kinds of things. One argument is is that let's, let's put the – let's put the juices at eye level and the soda on the, near the ground, right? I guess that – let's put the fruits and vegetables – at the as the impulse purchase, let's put a bunch of plums at the yep. at the checkout counter instead of candy. Yep. So I even guess, though that's impossible, because you probably you, some of them you have to keep cold or you have to water, as we said before. Correct. Uh, it, it's just not set up for that. Well, they'd have to rearrange um, it. They'd put a little cooler there, just like they do with the other stuff. It'd be nice. And then, and actually, you know what else? We'd put uh, economics books at the checkout counter instead of those those trashy magazines. You know, so you could get smarter. And maybe some Shakespeare. I, maybe some Shakespeare. I, I don't think you should open a grocery store, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think that that's an idea whose time will never come. Uh, bef- I think you're right. Uh, t- two things I want to mention before we close. Uh, there's a nice post at the blog Model Behavior uh-huh. on this topic I'm going to link to. I think the poster was uh, – Adam Ozemek, I'm pretty sure, uh, talking about his own personal experience in the grocery business and challenging Tyler Cowen, a frequent guest here, about his interpretation of the milk thing, which is uh, similar to Michael Pollan's. If I remember correctly, I'll check. And I also want to mention uh, one of my all-time favorite articles at the Library of Economics, which is Everybody Loves Mikey, uh, which was written by Michael Munger, which is related to this issue of consumer sovereignty. When I went to search for in the middle of this podcast – I put everyone likes Mikey, and I misspelled Mikey, and I put likes. But the actual title is everyone loves Mikey, but Google is so smart. And because everyone does really love Mikey and doesn't just like him, it said, did you mean everyone loves Mikey? <laughs> and it found it, it, it for me. It, it saw through it right away. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're done. Do you want to say anything else about groceries? Well, yes, I do. Or milk. In de- in, in today's Wall Street Journal, there's an article that uh, Mexico, the entire nation, is considering putting up signs at the entry to grocery stores that will show the amount of sugar and just a picture of 12 teaspoons of sugar as you walk into a grocery store. This is how much sugar is in a soda in the hopes that they will nudge people towards buying less soda. They have a big obesity problem. They're actually Mexico... Uh, Portions, at least, have a bigger obesity problem than than the United States, and they're hoping that just showing people, just information about how much sugar is in soda will have an influence. That's an interesting question. If all you're doing is, is providing information, now obviously you're competing for other kinds of attention. Requiring grocery stores to do this, I think, is pretty controversial. But that, that's, it's a nudge attempt. It, it's not really increasing the price in any way. They're not taxing it. They're not outlawing it like New York did. They're just saying, do you know how much sugar you're eating? No, it offends me. It offends me not because it lowers consumer well-being dramatically, right? It offends me because it treats me like a child. It yeah. assumes I don't know that sugar is part of the problem. I think they'd be better off, by the way, driving trucks around town blaring the Gary Taubes podcast on Econ Talk, uh, the episode about why we get fat, 
maybe that would have a, a more uh, effective uh, positive outcome. But um, I, I, the other thought I have is that warnings get forgotten very quickly. Uh, yeah. You see it over and over and over and over again, and then it just becomes part of your mental landscape that you just edit out. And, yeah, pro- um, probably just two or three times and it's gone. Yeah. So I, I, they'd have to change it constantly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My guest today has been Michael Munger. Mike, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.